and welcome to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Since you're listening to this show, I can make a pretty educated guess that you try to choose sustainable options whenever possible. But I bet you've experienced, as I have on countless occasions, that the most sustainable options are out of reach due to high prices or lack of availability. Let's take shoes, for example. We all need shoes, and I personally require durable shoes that can withstand my outdoor lifestyle. When my hiking boots fell apart very recently, I had to drop a pretty penny to replace my worn out shoes, and I know for a fact that I didn't select the most sustainable option because I couldn't justify dishing out an extra $50 to $100 on top of the already expensive price tag. Additionally, the quote-unquote green boots didn't seem to offer me any additional value other than feeling good for purchasing a pair of sustainable boots. So is it possible to make shoes that are fashionable, affordable, and truly sustainable? Every once in a while, we meet innovators that are disrupting industries and challenging the status quo. Today's guest not only designs fashionable outdoor shoes, but he's also created a brand whose core value is doing the right thing for the planet and for communities of all income levels. Today, I'm sitting down with Romel Vega, CEO of Holo Footwear. Romel was born in Nicaragua and immigrated to the United States as a young child, growing up in the vibrant city of Miami, Florida. Romel knew from an early age that he wanted to work in design and spent his high school and college years studying the field. Through a series of internships, he discovered that he wanted to create shoes, which combined his passion for design and sports. He climbed the ladder at several well-known shoe brands, but he knew he reached the limit of his impact and decided to co-found Holo Footwear, an affordable, sustainable shoe brand. Romel and I have such a fun time sharing our love of wine, his journey through design, and when he decided to become a fashion shoe designer, his career at top shoe companies like Puma, Merrill, and Keen, why he and other visionaries decided to strike out on their own and create Holo footwear, how shoes are made, what makes Holo's shoes truly sustainable, the struggles of launching a startup, and his hopes for the future. All right, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Ramel. Yeah. All right. Oh, what are you drinking? What What is that? It's a Pinot Noir from Oregon. It's a Willamette Valley. I'm a big Pinot Noir fan. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah it's just nice. It's like smooth and just like nice to just have conversations. And I don't know. It's, it's, I'm a, I pretty much only drink wine, which is really funny because I got I into it when I moved to Oregon. They grow some of the nicest Pinots. Uh, I love, I love where we were going with the wine. So, yeah, so you so got into the- wine when you moved to Oregon? I got into wine when I moved to Oregon. How could you not? You know, like they grow incredible pinots, but I'm not like, it's interesting, right? Because I got into it like just like a normal non-wine expert that we all are really. The, the vineyards are down the street, right? They're not too far from where I live. And the beauty of that is like, I can just go to, I was like, go to the source and get the wine and taste it. And it's cool. You got everything from like Sucker Blossom, which is a really cool vineyard that does oh. all sustainable growth. You have like, you know, Bergstrom winery that they do against sustainable growing. They don't, they don't 
you know, their, their sheep's come and graced the land and like prep the soil and then they plant the, I mean, it's just a whole process and it's all done sustainably. They reuse all their water. And so I got into it and I realized that there's a clear difference between like drinking something that's made like last month or, or this last harvest to drinking something that's been bottled and like maybe shipped and kept somewhere in a warehouse, potentially maybe not kept in like the right temperature. And so I started right. really getting into it. I got a really, really into it. And now it's like the, it's all I drink pretty much. I mean, I mean, I'll have, you know, whiskey and stuff once in a while, but um, I think my wife wishes that I would drink more tequila, obviously being from Mexico <laughs> and all, but it is, it is, it is smooth. You know, it's, it's a good, it's good. It's a, you drink it and, and, you know, it, it's, it's good for your, it's good for your soul. There's a reason why um, a lot of Europeans, I think, drink it. They must, they must have known something that we didn't know here in the new world for a while. Right. But uh, I love it. I, I do love drinking wine. So, yeah. I've totally gotten to wine as well. Because yeah. I was, me being raised where I was, I was raised just north of the Bourbon Trail. And so... Not that there was whiskey in my bottle, but I would not be surprised if there was. So <laughs> drinking yeah. whiskey forever. And then yeah. I finally became an adult and I'm like, I should probably just kind of stop this yeah. copious amounts of Jack Daniels. And <laughs> that is when I really started to get into wines. And like you have, yeah. you know, your Pinot Noir. I've really gotten to Pinot Grigios. I love dry Rieslings. I think those oh, yeah. are really tasty. I kind of oh, yeah. have to stay away from reds because I'm prone to migraines. Oh, okay. But yeah, yeah, not that they don't they don't taste good. It's just tannins. Yeah. I just gotta kind of be a little. I gotta be yeah, a little careful with. Yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's in, yeah. the, it's in the <laughs> bottle and it's in the glass, I love. Yeah, I'm I'm like Chardonnays. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Like I also live in Michigan half the time, and they grow mm -hmm. some of the most beautiful things you can find in the world because of the climate, obviously. So I've been really getting into that lately. It's just fun. It's got a cool. I don't know. I think like art, design, music, and booze just kind of all sort of. But, you know, responsibly, obviously, and it's an appreciation thing. I think more than anything, I do appreciate the process that goes into making and winemaking is a process. And, and it's like, it takes time, like everything in life, nothing's going to happen overnight. Something really good. It's had to go through a lot of processes. Like, you know, it's like kind of like this whole thing I'm doing. It's like it's funny. I think about it often because it's like you have to grow out of this hole. You put a seed and as you open a hole and like you put a seed and you get in there and like then the seed goes into a plant and then it gives you fruit. But you're literally digging yourself out of a hole every time you start a startup because that's that's what they call it seed, you know, seed funding, seed rounds. It's like you, you, you are digging yourself out of a hole that you made for yourself. Yes. Oh, my God. I think I just felt that in my soul. That is so <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Well, I think... Yeah. Well, I think that this is this is perfect. Like you're really starting to lay the groundwork. Literally, we're digging holes right now of you're just your entire life and your entire trajectory and what you've dedicated your life to. But let's let's maybe go back way in time. Tell me about Ramel as a young child and when in your like your journey or your time, did you realize that you wanted to be a designer? Of all the things you could have done, you decided to be creative and go into design. So tell yeah. me about that. How did that happen? It's interesting, you know, so I'm definitely a child of immigrants. My parents came here from Central America, from Nicaragua, of all places. And, you know, when you grew up in the third, so I was born in Nicaragua and, you know, I think it's the second poorest country in the Northern Hemisphere next to Haiti, if I'm correct. So my parents came here, you know, and then, you know, they got status and then they brought us over, my brother, my sister and I, and I, and I moved to like, I think out of all places in the world, like I moved to like Miami, right? Which is like, think about Miami in 
like complete city built on you know art nouveau 1920s beautiful architecture colorful colorful buildings you got your pinks your blues like there's so much great energy so you can't help but to when you grow up in a city like miami as, as a child and i moved there when i was two and a half so i went to a high school called dash and this high school takes kids from all over miami right it doesn't really matter like if you live in south miami which tends to be like the more bougie people that have more money if you grow up in like Alapata or if you live in Liberty City, like, you know, you grew up in the less sort of privileged areas of Miami. And like, I grew up in a trailer park, right? And so it was interesting that I applied for the school. You have to apply to kind of go on to college. So you apply to get into the school and you go on a Saturday and you submit a portfolio. Uh, and then, you, you know, they, they pick, I think it's like, I don't know, 100 kids out of the entire county. But the way wow. they have to do it, everyone gets to go just based on talent, not necessarily based on where your background is. So I got in. And then from that school, obviously now you're going to school with just a bunch of creatives. So my high school didn't have a football team. We didn't have any sports. There was no Friday night lights. There was no like, we, we had a prom, but I think they felt bad for us. Just our kids needed some, <laughs> something to do. But it was like doing art all the time. You know, we have math, we have science, we have geometry, but I did a lot of art. So I had like architecture classes. I had graphic design back in that time. The school was sponsored by Apple. So we were like testing out some of the new Mac products that Jobs was working on. So it was kind of a cool little incubator, I would say, of people who are just creatives. And so from that high school, I knew right away, I think middle school especially, I knew that I wanted to do something with art. Maybe not industrial design based, but just art. And so um, when you go to that school, you get to pick your lane, right? Okay, you can do fashion design. And the kids who do fashion design end up going to a school called FIT, which is pretty famous out of New York. Fashion Institute of Technology. If you do architecture, you go to Cooper Union, which is another really great college in, in New York. Um, if you do industrial design, you either go to Detroit, you go to San, uh, San Francisco. And so I got into industrial design, which was really anything you touch, like your microphone, like your glasses, your phone, like your computer, it, someone has to design it, right? Someone's got to like touch it and design it. So I got into that. And then I applied for school in Detroit. And I think eight of my friends from high school all went to school in Detroit to that same school. Again, it's, wow. a, it's a college that has no sports teams. It has no like Saturday games. You know, you, you know, your teachers are all in the automotive industry. So they're all like really hard on you as far as designing. And then every semester, every summer you get an internship or every semester you can get an internship. And some of the internships were like an Apple they were at Nike, they were at Converse, they were at Adidas, they were at Ford, they were at GM. So you're like this, no, you're making a decision like what the rest of my life is going to look like because you have to go into, you know, whether it's design or whatever it is. So I was able to figure out early on, I think high school especially, that I love art, I love painting, and I was going to use that to still have monetize and provide for myself because I know that like, you know, the whole starving artist thing is very real. So I wanted to pick a career that, you were innovative, you're changing, you're like designing, you're creating, constantly creating stuff. And that led me to that school in Detroit. And then I had like, and I was talking about all my friends had internships at like Ford and Chrysler and Nike. Like I ended up getting an internship at a place called Moen and they're in North Armstead, Ohio, and they design faucets. And so like when I, when I came back to school, like all my friends were like, yeah, you know, I hung out at like the campus in Portland and I was at Nike and I was like, what'd you do this time? I was like, yeah, I hung out in North Armstead, Ohio, and I designed faucets for Moen. You've signed them like, you know, Home Depot or whatever. But it was cool because I had to learn a lot of problem solving. But then that also helped me understand that I wanted to be in the fashion space. And so mm -hmm. I knew that I, I did not want to design 
foxes. I did not want to design laptops. I did not want to design phones. I knew that I was going to be somehow in the fashion space. And I love sports. So there's this connectivity between fashion and sport. And like, what better than like sneakers? You hear about a lot of athletes love, you know, fashion and their sneakers is a big statement piece. And then my friends in that school graduated and they went to work at like Puma and they went to work at Nike and they went to work at Adidas. And um, I ended up working at Fossil out of college designing women's watches out of all things. Mm. I did that year. And then after that, I got my big break in the industry and I got a job at Puma designing running shoes. And I never looked back. I've, I've only not done shoes one year out of my life, I think. And then I've only ever designed shoes since. Wow. Did you yeah. predict that when you were young? Like, no, did you I see mean, that, I, that is where I was going to go or. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. You know, it's funny. Um, I was talking to my wife about it yesterday because I actually I just turned uh, 40 yesterday. So it's my birthday. Oh, my was, gosh. Was, Happy yeah, birthday. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we're just <laughs> thanks a lot. We were just talking about it. I was just like, you know, people have told me when I was a kid in Nicaragua or when I grew up in Miami that I was going to go work for all these companies and you know, going to have some, somewhat of success or some capacity and then that I would eventually start this company and then that has some success at that some capacity. Like, I don't, I don't know that, you know, that I would have thought that this was all going to happen, but I was also, I'm also a believer, like I was watching the movie the other day and there was a quote that he says, like, I'm going to do what I have to do until I can do what I want to do. And so a part of that is I did everything I had to do. Like I moved from Miami, you know, I left my parents behind, my family. I moved from city to city, state to state. You have to sacrifice a lot, but at the same time, um, it really sets you up for um, for whatever your definition of success is. Because my definition of success might be different than somebody listening to this podcast. And so, therefore, like I think sometimes people try to define other people's success based on their own success. Like my journey is different than everybody else's journey. And so, it's about if you are where you're supposed to be, and if you really believe that that's success on its own, you know? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to sit down with you and, and everybody on the show is because we have such different journeys and our stories are so different. And what is like our passion and what's driving us couldn't be more different. And yeah. hearing so many stories about that, I feel can really change the world. And so that is why I was so excited to sit down with you and is you are taking a very different journey. And it's really interesting like like puma so it sounds like you i bet at the moment you might have felt like oh my god i have freaking made it i'm at like goddamn puma like everybody like i am the coolest guy right now so let's talk a little bit more about that at puma so what did you learn was this like your big first stepping stone into becoming like a shoe designer and how long were you there what what did you do you know i was it was cool like i moved because i was living in texas working for fossil and you know real story like i wanted to be in shoe design so mad so bad that i ended up taking a part-time job at the puma store in richardson texas which is like an outlet mall and i remember telling my boss at fossil i was like hey you know i'm gonna go work at puma someday so like and you know i'm gonna go take this part-time job because i'm applying for a job and she's like well yeah every, all your designers want to be shoe designers i'm like no but for real i'm like i'm not being serious Anyway, long story short, I applied for a job at Puma in Boston, went for the interview, they gave me the job, came back, and I uh, just I quit my job at the Puma store where I was not only sweeping floors after I had a corporate job designing watches, I was like putting shoes on the shelf to later go work at the corporate headquarters in Boston and not only just work there, but, you know, work for the international category that you have colleagues in like Tokyo and in London and like Berlin. And so being able to also travel to all those places, but 
the humbling experience of working at the actual outlet store. You know, when I got there, it's funny because the director was like, look, you're already plugged into the HR system because you would have this part-time job. So it's literally just a matter of when do you want to start. And so, nice. yeah. And so I ended up sending my manager at that time an email from RomelVega.Puma.com. And I was like, hey, I'm not coming to work this week because I'm working at the, at the headquarters in Boston. So that was, that was pretty cool. But yeah, you feel like you've made it, you know, like you feel like you, you feel, it felt like this sort of everything that I've been working for when I got to Puma, but then you realize you just start from the bottom again, you know, like you, mm. everyone above you is this badass designer who either worked at Nike or Adidas and they've been doing it for 15, 16 years and they're like directors and, you know, they work with athletes and you're just like this kid out of college two years in and you're like, okay, cool. I'm here now. And it's like, great. Just do color for the first year. You're not designing anything until you understand the shoemaking process. And then on top of that, they send you to like Vietnam, right? Where I want to spend time at the factories. So I'm spending time at the factories in Vietnam. I'm understanding how shoes are made before I can even actually draw a pair of shoes. Um, and then I remember my first pair of shoes was a pair of running shoes. But I was doing a lot of lifestyle stuff for a while. I was doing a lot of colors. I was doing a lot of materials. I was really learning the, that, that part of the creation process. And then the running design director came up to me he's like hey like who are we kidding he's like you know you have a design background you obviously want to design shoes so like let's get you in the running category where i need a designer and then you can start doing color and then you can give you a shot at designing shoes and so you know he went on to work for other companies but he kind of really set me up to learn the process and i remember designing my first running shoes that was going to be sold at Foot Locker. And, you know, you're super naive. You're just like, you're thinking it's like a drawing contest. You want to make the prettiest drawing, but it's really technical designing a pair of shoes. You have to really understand a lot of molding and how that stuff gets made. But Puma was, I would say, one of the greatest experiences for me because I got to travel all over the world. And it was learning to work with people from all different places, made some incredible relationships in places like Vietnam, China. Germany, people that I still talk to in the industry who are now seeing what I'm doing, they're like, man, you know, people talk about doing your own thing, but you're doing it, you know? And mm -hmm. so it was, it was an incredible humbling experience to say you've made it, but to where you've made it to the bottom of the top, which is a lot different than saying you made it to the top of the top, which I don't know that anyone ever does, just depending on what your definition of the top means. And that was a cool experience. I got to work with athletes, you know, that time there were the Olympics happening and I think it was in Germany, there were the world running Olympics. So Got to see some cool product get made. Like Usain Bolt shoes were being made. He's like the fastest man on earth. So, you know, I was in the running category. So just kind of seeing that thing come to life was really cool. Then there was a lot of projects with like Alexander McQueen and that was really fun. But, you know, let's, I was at the bottom of the top. Like I was just trying to get my hands on anything I could possibly get. So that was a cool experience. And I would, all, I would like to take this deeper for a second. And if you wouldn't mind, as somebody who has never designed a product, I've never put a product together, everything I do is very nature-based, and I happen to appreciate very well-made shoes, especially for what I do. I'm super athletic. I have all different kinds of workouts I do. I, I put my shoes through a lot. I hike in insane terrain. I travel the world. I, push, yeah. I put shoes through a shit ton of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they actually come to be. So could you maybe yeah. give me like a shoe making 101? Yeah. Like how does this actually work? Yeah. You know, I think like the, the way that I've seen it work or the way that I've done it, it really starts with, you know, storytelling is really important, right? Like something, yes, you eventually get somewhere physical and tangible, 
but the the storytelling part is like, why are you doing this like and that's something that i learned early on in my career is like why are you why does this shoe have to exist like why do people need this so once you define like it's going to make you faster stronger it's going to be lightweight so when you start building all of these parameters that is usually done by a merchandiser who's a person on the team they look at the business needs and sort of the comp- the brand needs right and so you're they build this called a brief which sometimes works sometimes it doesn't work but you build a brief and the brief tells you like we really want for example like she's looking for a shoe that's lightweight that's fast that's you know it's got x amount of millimeter drops and so you start defining and then you go and draw it you have to start sketching it and then once you sketch it and you find like the you know you have design reviews once you have the actual design idea on paper like a sketch like a paper and i I still sketch by hand really i don't like sketching on the computer much then you gotta like do a technique a tech pack so a tech pack is a technical drawing of what you're sending to the factories so they can make it and this is like no color it's just lines so if you're a creative person think about we live in a space of color and we live shapes and color right so just to do something like an architect like if i want to be an architect i could have been an architect but i i think architect is too too flat it's like two-dimensional where shoes are three-dimensional fast faster than a building is right so you have to almost take an approach where you're doing a draft drawing for the factories and so you like like for example like your outsole you have to design it and then you have to do all the cross sections in your head that don't exist so the People at the factories can follow it, make a 3D model of it based on cross sections all through the shoe. So you're splitting this thing in your head 10, 20 different ways, and you're drawing all of this cross section with something that doesn't physically exist yet. So wow. they can go and make it. And so then they make you a sample, and then you start working in three dimensional form. Um, and then the shoe kind of takes life. But from paper to actual sample, a lot of it has to do with really understanding cross sections and engineering. It's a big part of it. I don't think people understand the work that goes into actually getting a shoe to come to life, but um, it's about a three or three month process from ideation to getting a sample made. It's about a you know ninety day, you know lead time to just getting salesman sample. And it's about two years out, so we work about two years out on a lot of our stuff. But a lot of it happens in your brain. Like, wow, you're spinning this thing in three D in your brain, and you're like trying to figure out the materials, the cross sections, how's it going to fit? How's it all really going to come together? Because they have to make molds for the outsoles. And when they make those molds, they're all based on your, you know, cross sections. It's still done that way to this day. You can have all the 3D programs you want, but those 3D programs still generate cross sections that ultimately get sent to a mold shop. And then the mold shop makes the, makes the outsole and then the pattern cutter, like he makes the pattern, which means like you have to take something that's three-dimensional in your head and lay it out flat and see butterfly that upper and see how it's gonna really come together. So yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of, I think, really envisioning what it looks like before you even see it. Holy crap. I mean, <laughs> I assume there was a lot that goes into it. Yeah. Again, because it's just like so far from my day to day, which is why I wanted to ask, like, I love asking these kind of questions. Like, yeah. what does it actually take? We all wear shoes. Like we all, yeah. we all wear shoes. And it's something that I think that we almost take for granted, but somebody like you has dedicated your life to creating sustainable shoes. So what does that mean? How, how does it even come to be? And like, I, I don't know, like two years from like ideation yeah. to a physical product that's on a store shelf. That is yeah. incredible. Wow. Two years. I had no two clue. Yeah. Two years. And you could work on something that gets dropped before you even go some sales. So you could spend as a designer two years and the business people can decide, you know, we don't need that right now. It doesn't hit our margins or 
you know, the color doesn't work for our retail partners. And so like you just spent two years working on something that never sees the light of day. So those days are tough, I think, if you're a creative person. But, you know, for the most part, some most of the good stuff makes it. But some of the really, really good stuff is on the verge of getting cut constantly. So there's this wow. sort of tug and pull tension between you and merchandisers and sales. You know, as a creative person, you got to sell them on it. So then they can go and sell it to the retail partners. And if you don't get enough placement of the product, then they just end up dropping it. So it's, it's a, you're selling the vision of something that, you know, people like to live in the now, which is what's selling today. I don't really care about what's going to sell spring 2024, but yeah, yeah, but I just designed this in like spring 2021. <laughs> like this, <so>. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like this, you know, <laughs> we think it's going to go here, but you never know. You never know. Holy crap. Okay. That is insanely yeah. helpful. So this is what you did at Puma. And then I think this is also a good transition as well. You obviously you're not at Puma anymore. Um because yeah. this whole conversation today wouldn't happen. So that's obviously yeah, leading yeah, up to yeah. that. But so so is that what you did at Puma? And then maybe what happened after Puma? Why why did you leave there? You know, it yeah, it was one of those things. I think change is good there was changing leadership like my director had left because he was gonna go launch a, a footwear brand for a small company called under armor at that time they didn't have a footwear category so he was picked to sort of go put that together and then we had new leadership things changed and i really want to live in the west coast so i ended up moving down to california where i have a job opportunity to work for dc shoes uh, which was owned by quicksilver at that time and that was cool because I was like, okay, cool, I'm gonna go work for like skaters, right? Totally different than I was doing because I was working with athletes and they're athletes in their own right. But it was like Rob Deirdrick, you know, when he was like really popular back in the day, which super dates me, but he would come to the office and I was like, I know Southern California sounds cool. I've always wanted to live in California. You know, it could be, it could be like a cool experience, you know? So I went and I interviewed and I got the job and then I left Puma and uh, moved out to California to, to SoCal. I lived in Huntington Beach for a while. And that was cool because I, I went from working with like I what I think is a really buttoned up suit, which is I think Puma's a brand that is extremely buttoned up, established. They have processes and everything was just like put together because they're a global brand and they're the third biggest footwear company in the world. To work for like, kind of like a smaller company like DC Shoes that was financially backed by Quicksilver. And there was like, so you have some designers and you have some like skaters that became designers. And so it was like, <laughs> they were like, bring you a Chuck Taylor and they'd be like, I want this. I'm like, yeah, well, you can't have that because Converse already owns that. So, like, yeah. you know, so, so, we can do something like it. So, yeah, everybody, you know, it's funny because with the whole Instagram thing, it's like everyone's a designer these days. Like, you know, everyone just, yeah, just, it is what it is. But it was funny, you know, worked with some pretty cool skaters that, you know, they came into the studio. And so I was working with, at that time, he was really young. Like, Nadja Houston came to the office. So I got to see him when he was like super young, just like really young at a, trying to break into the skate scene. Travis Pastrana was another guy that I, that I worked on some stuff with. And Ken Block, who I think recently passed away, my manager, he was designing all of the Ken Block stuff. So he would tell me stories about going to Utah, hanging out with Ken Block. So that was cool. It was a cool time. I don't know that, you know, DC at that time was like cranking as a shoe brand. You know, they're like pretty big at journeys. But I got to meet some really cool people who I still stay in touch with. And so that was a different experience. I felt like, if I would have had DC before Puma, like, I feel like I would have gone there with like, well, I just got away. I just, I just left Puma to come here. 
And they're like, dude, chill. This is just SoCal. We're not trying to take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a different transition. And then, you know, I, uh, it was cool. I love Cal- I love the ocean, so I love Cali. Then I moved from California to Oregon, where I think, like, my career really blossomed, where I really, I think, took a step into, like, more leadership role. I became, like, a senior designer. I went to work for Columbia Sportswear, uh, and then worked on a lot of their footwear. They own, you know, they own Sorrel, and they own uh, a few of the brands. So I was able to dabble a little bit in a few different sort of categories. And then I became a design director right after that. I worked up, I worked at Columbia for a while. Columbia was a big, big part of my career. I think I spent like about eight years there and I met some really cool people. You know, I think it's hard to work for a brand that doesn't have say, you know, footwear wise, I have incredible brand equity when it comes to outerwear, but footwear, they're not really establishing footwear, say like Puma was, right? So to get somebody to buy a pair of Columbia shoes over like a Nike or Adidas, like that should better be good. It better be very good, right? Because they're not about, about brand. People like brands. So that was a cool experience. That was a really cool experience. I, I really enjoyed my time there. I spent a lot of time in China. Um, I would go to China. I would fly there, come back, spend a week at home, let, you know, pick, pick up my doll from daycare, put him back in, head back to China. Uh, I spent time in Zhuhai, which is a cool little town between Hong Kong and Macau. Met a lot of really, really incredible people. And then, again, leadership change. I spent a lot of time there already. And like everything else, you like, well, it's time for me to be a director somewhere. And then I went to be a design director for Keen. Keen is also in Portland, so Keen Footwear. So I was heading out their lifestyle division. I met some friends there. And I, that was a short, short time because if you're in an outdoor industry, you want to work for the biggest outdoor brand and footwear, which is technically considered, you know, it's really Merrill, like that's the big one. Everybody wears Merrill. And so they came knocking and they offered me the global lifestyle design director. And so I ended up picking up my bags and I moved to Michigan. Talk about full circle. I went, to, I went to school in Detroit. Yeah. I went to travel all over the world, came back to Michigan, and I was a design director for, for Merrill for a while. And I would travel a lot. That was a different, a different experience as well because that, that's more of an established brand. They're, you know, they have a lot of equity in, in what they do and what they do really well. So kind of like pushing a brand like that to do new things, it's a, it's a little more difficult, I want to say, than to say a brand that's real innocent and just trying to find its way in the marketplace. So they're good at what they do. That same good at what they do, it's also what kind of holds brands back, I personally think, you know, because they obviously want to keep making a lot of money and that's and that's what they're good at. But new brands started emerging, you know, new things started happening, COVID hit. Uh, and then that's how I started Holo Footwear. It started from the bottom now here, I like to say. One of those journeys that I think I worked a lot of places. But I always had in the back of my mind that I was going to eventually someday own my own brand. And a lot of the things that I did to get me to where I needed to be was really thankful for the experiences. I learned a lot from a ton of people. And you'd be surprised what goes into just making decisions on businesses. And now that I'm in the position of owning a business, I understand some of those decision makings that I didn't perhaps understand as just a designer on the team. I was like, what do you mean we can't do it? This is cool. Like, just make it just cool. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> like, so I have a lot of respect. I think obviously now I know now what I didn't know then. Uh, so, but yeah, this is how Hall of Four got started. You know, started, we're a COVID company where they call us, we're a COVID startup, which, you know, I think it's a perfect time to start a company, you know, when the world shut down, you have nothing to do. So you're just thinking what to do. And, you know, I think that was a really good time for everyone to sort of recalibrate 
And for me, it was like, I don't want to go work for anybody anymore. I don't, I'm tired of doing that. I want to make a difference and use my talent for the greater good, you know? And I wasn't going to do that if I just went to get another design job. It just wasn't going to happen. I was, there's not another shoe that I'm going to design, you know, that is going to make a difference. I really had to like put myself in the driver's seat and like have a startup and find a way to fund it and find a way to, you know, get it into retail. And like all of those challenges were just cool. They were different, but I'm also a person who loves to constantly learn. So I've been learning a lot the last three years. I bet you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. And I'm really thankful that you just took us through the, your entire journey because I feel like each of those places that you were at have definitely influenced having looked at your shoes now. And what we're going to dive into next is I'm, I'm sure that most of the people listening have heard those outwear shoe brands. And most of us have probably bought several pair from them. Heck, you might even design some of my shoes now that I know <laughs> when you were there. It's yeah, very yeah, possible because sure. I've very I've possible. had Merrill's, I've had Sarah's, yeah. I've had Keen's, I've had I've had all of those brands and some other ones I've had as well that are all in the they're big players in the outdoor shoe space. Yeah. And that is now what you will have. That's what Holo is. But I I you you started to talk about it a little bit, and I want to get more in, into your why for a second. Mm-hmm. So mm. one starting your own business is super, super scary. Like yeah. it, it just is. I mean, this, this show is a COVID baby as well. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I had the idea of uh, watching a documentary, bawled my eyes out. I'm like, I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm doing yeah. it. Spread voices. Like that is what I need to do. But a lot of people say it, but they don't necessarily do it. Yeah. So why did you feel it was part of your mission to launch a sustainable shoe brand? You could have become the, you know, sustainability director or like yeah. a sustainability director for a, another shoe brand that that would have gladly hired you to essentially build their sustainable shoe line. But you decided that you needed to go do your own thing. So what what void did you see in the sustainable outdoor shoe world that you felt that you could fill that you wouldn't be able to fill in like a bigger company yeah you know it definitely is a passion right like i think when you do this you're following your passion i think that's first and foremost when the whole idea came up i was simply going to start a shoe company right it wasn't the beginning wasn't like i want to start a sustainable company the beginning was I want to start a shoe company that's affordable, that looks really good. And then, you know, it's interesting, my wife now, who was my girlfriend at that time, she's much, much smarter than I am. She was like, well, if you're going to start a company, like, you got to make it sustainable. I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think you're onto something, right? And so we, we got into this path and I'm like, what is sustainability? Like, what is, like, what? Like, what is it exactly? And like, I'm a... I like to, I'm a thing, very different mindset of what something is sustainable, right? Because that word gets thrown around like, oh my God, everyone does it, right? And so I'm just sitting here like, look, you know, I've, I've been to China. Like, I know how shoes are made. Like, I know how material is actually sourced. Like, so there's, there was a point in time when I was flying, I was driving back and forth from Michigan to Oregon during that pandemic because she lived in Michigan. I still have, place in Oregon and I was stopping like 
places like Iowa. I was stopping places like you know Montana. Like I was stopping places like Wyoming, which if you've ever been, is a vast piece of land. All you do is think and drive, like windshield time. And like I took a flight once from Portland to Michigan, and I was reading a magazine, and it was talking about a certain brand. And it'll be, I'll be honest, it just brought me the wrong way, you know, in a weird way, because mm. I've been doing footwear for so long that it was like, it's like the Silicon Valley, you know, uniform and the coolest thing in town, the coolest shoes, and they're made sustainably. And, you know, I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, the where is the added value for the customer, right? I was thinking to myself, like, where is the added value there? Like, because somebody who's influential wears a pair of shoes that it's made responsibly claim to be a, a brand or any brand really that like, oh, we can measure CO2, you know? And I'm sitting here like, wait a minute. There's no way in hell you can measure a CO2 of a shoe. There's just no way. And I've been doing this for a long time. And so I set out to create a brand that was just like honest, like down and dirty, like super raw, you know, just like real honest in the way we make our brand, our product and our brand. like. We don't do, we don't have any certifications, like, cause like, why do you need certification? You're like an adult, like you should just do the right thing. Like, like who made certain people that certify other brands, like the police of sustainability, first of all, like they're all making money. They are all making money. Every time you see that label on something, they get paid. Right. And so I refuse to do that because I know how product is made. And so we set out to create this real honest company that it's not gonna upcharge something because it's made responsibly. We're not gonna upcharge our customer and our consumer is not gonna have to pay and overpay for product, which for a fact, I know how much it costs to make because I've been where it's made and I spent a lot of time where it's made. I understand materials, I know how it's made. And so they're charging for brand and they're charging for you know certain things that it just, it just like really rubbed me the wrong way. And so I set out to be, you know, be a disruptor. You know, I was like, you know, I'm going to disrupt this nonsense. What it is, it's just nonsense that the consumer has to overpay for something that is doing the right thing. Right. So it's like, I don't know. I'm a big fan of Spike Lee. So like, do the right thing. Like if I have that shirt on, right <laughs> now, I would do the right thing. Right. But it's like, yeah. you just become, you just start, you know, become disruptive. You're like, you know what? I'm going to create a product that looks really good. That's everybody on the team has worked at a, a bunch of different companies. So we all really know the system, how it works. So we're kind of like their biggest nightmare because now we went and created this brand on the ethos that sustainability should be for all. You got to democratize it. It should be for people who are for lower incomes. It should be people who are higher income. It should be for people who live in Wyoming, not just like San Francisco and not just New York. It has to be for everyone for us to really make a difference in recycling trash. I mean, if if only the cool kids in school are wearing, and that's two out of 10, like they're not really making a difference. And if you really cared about people and sustainability, do you make it affordable to everybody? Like that's our challenge, not only to the industry, but that's our challenge to ourselves as a brand. It's like, let's take the, the talent and the knowledge that we've gained and really flip this industry on its head. And And then on top of that, we can say, and I dare anybody to, you know, tell us that we don't know what we're talking about um, because they can't, dis they can't disvalue your opinion because you've done it. And so we're doing, we're being disruptive in a cool way and we're finding really cool partnership. And like I said, we're not, we don't play the certification thing. We don't, we don't have the school stickers on our window in our office, on our boxes. Like 
I'm sorry, I'm going to play that game. That's nonsense. Like, we are doing the best we can to make the best footwear made in the best possible way, responsibly. That means, you know, not overcharging the consumer for something. And the beauty is, then you start selling shoes on, like, Nordstrom's and REI, and, like, it validates you. Like, it's, like, it's super funny. It's super cool. Like, I love to see my $65 pair of shoes that's made in the same factory as everyone else, really sit next to like the $200 pair of shoes. And it's like, <laughs> it's just great. And people are buying it and it's fun. And it's a, it's a serious business, but it's, it's really more of a like, wait a minute. Like we got to change this narrative that like sustainability is just for like the cool kids and this and that. Like, no, 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 no. It has to be for everyone. And everyone has to participate simply because everyone should have the right to participate in making and buying responsible stuff. The more, the more people can participate in it, and you can talk about brand and brand direction, but if you really want to make a difference, like don't price them out, price them in, price them in, allow them to participate with their wallets, which I think some of them can't because it's too expensive. And so you'll never, they'll never be able to participate in making a difference because they get priced out. Absolutely. And I mean, from personal experience, like everything I do is on passion and unfortunately, yeah. In this world of what I do, passion doesn't necessarily pay you that much. Yeah. And so I know so many people that are fully dedicated to living in a sustainable way, but they can't afford to. And yeah. it's not because they don't want to. And so then you like running to this like a constant guilt factor. And I, I've been susceptible to this self all the time. It's like, I want to do the right thing. I want to buy the electric car. I want to buy all the whatever, the most sustainable clothing brands. I hate fast fashion. But at the same time, if I can't afford to do that because I have student loans, I have a car payment, I have life, and most of any extra money I have actually goes to this show. (laughs) So like, I can't necessarily afford to buy the most sustainable thing. And this is what I do. Like, and I try my hardest. And so what about people that are, you know, like a single mother that has three children, is she going to be able to afford the most sustainable options? Probably not because the most accessible option is usually pretty bad for the planet. And then there's this constant like guilt factor, but you can't blame somebody who can't afford the more sustainable option. So it has, there's almost like an elitist factor to it, to a lot of sustainable stuff. And I, and I see it and I feel it personally all the time. Like I, I could probably change my career right now and go make what I'm making, but I wouldn't be fulfilling my passion at all. But then I could afford the sustainable stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And that goes for everything. That goes for food. Like, you think about yes. these companies that care about, like, food and what people eat. Like, I would say, like, all I see in the hood is, like, fast food restaurants. I don't see, like, the fancy food places. You know, where are my Whole Foods at? Like, where is my New Seasons? Why are you not in Liberty City? Like, why why are you not in these places, right? Like, why, why are we disenfranchising these people? Like, why? But, I mean, I know why. I mean, there's, like, margins and return of revenue for a lot of this of these people, but the tide is changing. I think it's changing because our generation, I think, and the creative people out there are saying like, or people who, who have an opportunity to make a difference are saying like, you know, I'm not gonna go sit at the chair and just make you a shoe that you're gonna sell, you know, 300,000 pairs of one style that I designed and you're gonna make 80% margin on it. Like, no, enough of that. 
you know, I'm going to go try to do something that everybody can play and it's some, some capacity fair. And like, I don't think you have to get it right. I think you just have to try to get it right. And I think that's where people go wrong. So you could be, you know, we're a brand that makes footwear that happen to be sustainable. Like we're not just a sustainable brand. I mean, you know, it's a clear, it's a very different. There's brands that all they talk about is their sustainability and they're like CO2 emission, but it's like, but what about the product? I'm buying a pair of shoes here. Like, talk to me about, and they do that because their product is like amateur hour. Like, it's, it's right. not good. It's ugly or it's, it's poorly made or, you know, all they are hanging on is their $3 million worth of marketing spent that they just spent because the product has no substance. But we're a brand that the product has substance and the product looks good and it's at an affordable price point. So that's, that's a little different because it's, it's made by product people. So we don't have to convince the consumer and constantly be like on them to be able to buy into our brand because we know that when the fluff is gone, like the product's got to be good if you're going to get that return consumer. And so for us, it's been really focused on product, making it real responsible and making sure that we're doing the best we can and not really falling into the trap of like being certified by anybody. Who cares? I mean, for us, I don't really care. And we've been able to partner with the right people that really understand what we're trying to do. Because if I have to pay for a certification, you know, if we have to pay for certification, you know, like what, you know, Burke, like, what are we doing? You know, it's like, so we're paying certification. So, so we're doing the right thing. And like, I don't know, I come from a household. like, man, just do the right thing. You know, be, be a responsible adult. Like nobody has to hold your hand to the fire. And, and then I think we all win and we win better. And so I think people are kind of, I personally think, you know, they're kind of getting over that, that we need certain people to give you the green light, you know, it's like, no, no, I'm not playing that game. And they can't discredit us because we've been doing this. I can guarantee you that the people that certify product haven't spent enough time in China. I got more China visas than they do. So like, they're not going to tell me how something <laughs> sustainably, like that doesn't work. I always joke that when shoes are made in China, like some person is like missing a lace for a sample. They got to get on a little scooter and they got to drive to the next supplier. And like, who's measuring that CO2? Like, who's measuring that? Like, nobody, you know what I'm saying? So it's just, it's just a game. Like, we, we won't do it. And we pride ourselves in just being honest and just being real. And like, you know, our price points are what they are because we don't, we're, not, we're not playing into that. And I think this is a perfect time to, so I'm a big believer in walking the walk as well as talking the talk. And that is, I'm all about conservation action. And pretty much everyone that's on my show is doing what they say which is why I have them on the show. And that's why I wanted you to come on as well. So how, for those of us that don't know, which I'm, I will raise my hand as one. <laughs> how do you make a sustainable shoe? What makes a shoe, like I can say on this box, this is a sustainable shoe and it's not greenwashing. It's truly a sustainable shoe. Yeah. What does that mean? How do you do that? Yeah, you know, I think like because the word sustainable has been, you know, used so much, I don't, yes. you know, to some brands, again, it, it is greenwashing for some some companies, you know, and that's why they upcharge so much. And that's an easy, easy tall tale sign right there that is like, well, you're making me do this because you're saying it's sustainable, but what is it really? The way we right. do it at Hall of, and I can't speak for everyone. I mean, the way we at Hall of Four do it, you know, we are using, Post-consumer goods. So imagine like your scarf that you're wearing. You're done with it, ends up in the trash. You were able to, you know, grind that. And, you know, instead of like it, that physical thing you have on you right now, just ending up in the landfill, we're able to take that, we'll regrind it, and we'll, we'll throw that comp in our like auto compound. 
So like now it gives that outsource some force structure, you know, because it already has more content of recycled material. So we recycle a lot of the stuff we're using, like our laces are made from recycled cotton. Instead of virgin cotton that's new, everything is made from recycled. The, the, it's not a virgin product, it's recycled. So whether it's, you know, the mesh, it's made from water bottles that were in the ocean, right? And a lot of brands will like really brag about that stuff, but it's like, yeah, well, there's so much abundance of water bottle. Like just use the water bottles, dude. Like stop talking about that. It's supposed to be like this great thing and they do it because it's greenwashing. But if you're doing a shoe company, a shoe brand, just just use recycled water bottle thread. Like the, the technology is there. A lot of people are doing it. There's no need to not use that. A lot of them don't use it because that tends to be a little more expensive than the than the, the stuff that's bad for the planet because they have to go through this process of recycle, reuse. And some of it, you know, sometimes not, it's not as, I would say, doesn't perform at the level that some other materials perform at, you know. But uh, but for for brands that are trying to do, like, lifestyle or, you know, hiking, like, there's plenty of stuff you can choose from. Um, you don't have to just create more trash. There's plenty of trash. The, this planet is not going to run out of trash, you know, like, yeah. When I, when I was, yeah, it's not gonna run out of trash. When I was going through my investment round, one one person was like, "Well, you know, you could take trash from um, from the United States and like send it to China so they can recycle it, so you can make more shoes." And I like, look here, dude. China doesn't want our trash. They have plenty of trash there already. Like you know, so it's like it's like this. I it's like this concept that you know everything has to be made from a new source or a new material. Like that doesn't have to be the case anymore. I think we have incredible technology that can recycle something that can give a new life and shred it and like blend it and and make mesh out of it, make rubber out of it, make EVA. And so, you know, that's what we as a brand, it's it's sustainable because we're using post-consumer goods trash. Like that's why our foam is called Honest Foam because it's just honestly made of trash. A very high content of trash, by the way. So a lot of it is from recycled consumer goods. So we, we that's what we at Holo Footwear say. It makes something sustainable. Um, some people define it differently. You know, some some people use, you know, oh, we use glue. We use water-based glue. We, we do the same thing. You know, we use water-based glue. And I would say that to get into places like REI, we, we've, we've had to show some certification from where the material come from. And that's like the only source that I, I give them. And I, and I, you know, speak about Nordstrom and REI because they are, you do to be able to show and say this is a green brand or a green product. You do have to show that. And we show, I mean, it's all our materials are come from the source that is made from recycled material. So that's what we say is sustainable. Now, how other people do it, you know, that's on them. But for us, it's like, there's plenty of trash. We're not going to run out. People throw away clothes all the time. And so, you know, being able to take something that's going to end up in a landfill, repurpose it. If you look at our shoes too, when I first started selling the shoes, to be honest, people were like, oh, like the outsole, like the midsole, it's like really bumpy. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what makes it cool. It's bumpy because it's made from trash. Like that's what recycled trash looks like. Can you make it smooth? I'm like, no, that takes away the whole purpose. The whole purpose is that people see that it's made from trash if i spend water and energy trying to make that thing smooth then it defeats the purpose like yes you're using recycled stuff but you're using a bunch of water and energy to make it visibly what we have come to know as the standard of what 
something has to look like. I think that there's a beauty in like imperfections. Like it's perfect in a very imperfect way. Our shoes are the midsole look bumpy that you can feel, you can see some of the stuff that's used, just regrind. And so the consumer really connects with that because I'm not telling them that is made from regrind materials. I mean, it is on the box and it is on the, sh like, you know, the shoe tie, but there's nothing more beautiful than when someone sees it for themselves. And that's where we talk about the story. Like, why are they buying it? It's because they can see it for themselves. That it's like, this is different. Like, it's a very different looking product. Um, and I like it and it speaks to me. And then they pick it up and then they say, wow, no, this is recycled canvas. So it's made from recycled kind laces and it's made from recycled mesh. So that's, that's one component of, of why we, we can pride ourselves and say we're sustainable, um, just keeping more trash out of landfills. And, you know, hopefully someday we'll get to a point where we can do a lot of 360 upcycle, you know, where we can take our own shoes, regrind those and remake them. Um, you know, that's obviously the dream. I do like biodegradable stuff. You know, that's also the dream. But, you know, we'll get there. I think for now we're really just trying to get people to buy product that's made using stuff that's somebody going to end up in the trash. I think that alone is, and try to get more people to buy it by making it accessible to price point. I think that can make somewhat of a difference instead of just a whole new thing, a whole new material. Like it's just that you're not doing anything then, you know? Absolutely. And I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of trash experts. Mm. And one of the one takeaway that she had that I will never forget She's like, if you can buy the recycled product, do it. Buy it yeah. over the biodegradable one because you are mm -hmm. fueling a industry to like because your your dollar really does decide what companies do. And yeah. if you buy the product that is made from recycled materials, then you are helping support that industry. And so That's buying whole. recycled shoes. Then mm -hmm. that's keeping all of that out of the landfill. And then once you become closed loop, that would be fantastic. And then being able to recycle your own shoes. Yeah, yeah. things do have a, a, a finite time. Most items, not everything, but a lot of them do. I mean, what, what would be on our feet? We're not going to wear like aluminum that's like forever <laughs> recyclable or something like that. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. But so I actually, actually loved hearing you say that coming from the, you know, a strict hardcore, hardcore conservation background. And having these opportunities to talk to these, you know, trash experts and they and that was what I and I believe her. She told me that she advised me that she's like, get the recycled product. If you can get something that's made from recycling, you are helping with this problem of trash. And yeah. so to hear that that's what you're doing, like yeah. I was just getting like all tingly and happy inside. <laughs> I was like that. Yeah. That is what I want to support. Yes, yeah. we can say that things are made from, you know, sustainably grown bamboo or, or yep. something like that, which, yeah, that, that is great. And I don't want to knock down any products that's made with that. Yeah. But if something is like this is made from recycled XYZ, I'm going to know that I need to buy that product because I want to continually get items out of our trash system and reuse yep. them. Like it yeah. used to be until before disposables. That's what we used to do. There was no such thing yeah. as throwing things away. Like you yeah, just use yeah. them until they they pretty much fell apart. You know. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's true. Like I think that does feel an entire industry. I mean, at least our industry in the food industry, we've made a lot of strides. Like those are the last ten years. A lot of cool innovation material. There's like recycle waterproof material now that you can use on your shoes and so i think the technology is really there 
uh, where a lot of these suppliers are taking things that would end up in the in the landfill and waste and repurposing it. So I think if we can repurpose something, it's I think it's for me personally, I think better than like growing something, waiting for it to get ready to do it. Like I think kudos to those that can do it, and, and you know that's what we looked at. But for us, it's like you know let's let's try to use as much you know recycle content in our product because it's just less stuff that ends up in the landfill. And for something that will eventually, you know, I'm not, I don't kid myself, it eventually end up in the landfill as well. But it's had, it's had a second life, and it's, it's been repurposed, and it's, it's, it's just better, I think, personally. But I think technology is really catching up, and it's going to really fuel the future. That if you're not doing stuff with recycle, if you're like a new company, and if you're not doing it that way, like you're just old school. I mean, you know, I look at the auto industry to your point about you want to buy an electric car. Like the fact that Ford is doing the F one fifty lightning electric lightning think about that ford is the number ford f-150 is the number one selling truck car in the in the country and for the longest time these guys at ford they were like electric's not the way electric's not the way we're not doing electric we're all gasoline power we're not doing electric and here comes elon creates this company called tesla and they're starting to see that it's eating their lunch so because now (laughs) their profits hurting and it's eating their lunch they're like, oh my gosh, we got to do electric. We got to do electric. Now now we got to do electric. It's all electric. <laughs> all in, all in. It's so crazy, right? But it's like, it shouldn't have to be that way. Like, it shouldn't have to be because your profit margins are hurting because you should just know that the consumer really cares about what they put in their bodies, like what they drive, what they wear. And so when when that, when Ford did the F-150, that's a clear sign to me that they, they threw in the towel and they realized the change and the behavior of the buying of the consumer that, they can no longer compete by doing it the old way. The new way is finding ways to be more efficient. And nobody's saying that, you know, the world's going to change tomorrow. But at some point, it has to start this change of like, you know, we treated the planet like it's our dorm room for the last 300 years. And look what's happening, you know, and it's like, you can't deny it. I always talk about you can't deny it. Like, I don't care what side of the aisle and I'm not a politician. I don't really care. I just know that it's hot and it's hot and it doesn't snow a lot. And that's it. That's all I need to know. It's a fact. <laughs> like, I don't need beyond that. Like, I don't need more, you know? Like, I know that when I go outside in the summer, it's like hot. And it wasn't that hot when I was a kid. That's all I know. So, Are you hoping to be like a Tesla in the outdoor sustainable shoe uh, yeah. industry? Is that kind of like your goal? You know, I mean, our goal I mean, is really to be disruptive. We want to influence other brands to play at least try to play in our space we created you know we know there's a white space of nobody was making sustainable product attainable and so our thing is so sustainable and attainable and so now that we created and and there's a marketplace for it because we're seeing it from our retail partners i'm sure that other people will play in that space it's just gonna be like are you willing to take less margin for that to do the Mm. right thing and so that's where the science experiment really comes to life because i bet that they're going to have to because the brand is growing and then the product is beautiful and on top of that it's attainable so for us really i mean our goal is to just do do the right thing continue to do the right thing create sustainable product i don't know to be honest with you where it's going to be in five ten years but my goal is to my my overall goal was to really wake up the industry and say stop you know buying and talking to yourselves like it's great that Everyone in the industry talks to each other and talks about how great they are because they're trying to do one thing that's sustainable. Like the whole thing should be sustainable. What are you talking about? Like you shouldn't get an award 
because you're doing the right thing. That's nonsense. Like you should just do it because it's the right thing to do. And so if we can influence our industry to change the narrative on how product gets made and who gets to participate in it and, and be more inclusive and inclusive doesn't necessarily just mean like people of color, inclusive mean people that don't have a lot of money. How do you do that? You know? And so for us, that's, that's a big, big challenge, but we know that the industry is taking notice because we, We've seen our product in, in the right retails. We see great sell-through, which means that the consumer is there. They were just being ignored for a long time. And so this yeah. we're gonna be we're gonna be a problem that the industry is gonna have to figure out how to deal with because we're not gonna go anywhere. I guess I don't know how to ask this next question. Like how big are you guys? And and I yeah, because I have no I have no concept of shoe brand size really. Yeah. But like where where would you say you guys are at in and are you growing like exponentially? Like, are you really making waves? Are you starting to see that? Are you, or are you like, I guess, are you getting feedback from some of your former colleagues at these big shoe brands? Like, Hey, you know, Ramel, what, what's going on here? Like we're, yeah. we're starting yeah. to hear some whispers about you, like those yeah. kinds of things. So, so what, what influence are you starting to see maybe on the industry as a whole, as people start to really fall in love with Holo? Well, I mean, we're definitely seeing displacement, you know, our retail, for example, we know that, you know, we're getting placed in all like a lot of really premium space retailers, which is really interesting because we're an attainable shoe company and we're, we're selling at places like Nordstrom's and REI, you know, where Macy's, we just opened Shields, which we'll be selling here in the next few months. And so when you get placement in retail, that gives a clear sign that the product is moving and there's a consumer there. So as we start to expand, not only in the U.S. retail, but international, like Canada and Europe and, and, and Australia, for example, and we start getting good placement, then we understand that we've not created a piece of the industry that wasn't there before. And that's just a clear sign, you know. So, I mean, we definitely want to grow smart. We want to grow slow. We don't necessarily just want to blow this out, but because <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we're definitely still just three years in, but we're noticing that the consumer and the retailers are understanding the need to make sustainable, affordable to people. And where, you know, I can say we're the original and we're, we're the ones that thought of the concept. And this idea of being outside is really important. You know, I think people used to say outdoors, right? And now I'm seeing companies that were using outdoors start using words like outside um, on their social media or their whatever. So that's a clear sign that they're paying attention and we're really connected, you know, so we, we know people are paying attention. We, we know it, we see it. People in the industry, whether it's like presidents, high level people are telling us, you know, you know, they're all championing us, though. This is really cool. Like super, mm -hmm. you know, they want to see us succeed, which is great. So it is it's, you know, I'm sure our competitors are not necessarily, but there's people in the industry who have been doing this for a long time that are excited that we're doing this and we're, we're disrupting an industry that's been doing business as usual. And for us, that's how we're growing. Uh, you know, we're growing our, our audience. We're growing our, our consumer. And also growing our retail presence, which I think is a telltale sign when accounts or retailers call you for your product, that means that they're hearing from other people that the brand is, is, is working. I can only imagine how that feels, honestly. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, to have Macy's call you up, be like, hey, we would love to have your shoes yeah. in the store. You know, how does that happen? And yeah. I'm sure those days just feel so validating and incredible. But as with every single person that comes on this show, and I always have to ask this, and I know it has to be the same for you. I mean, we've been talking about all of this 
incredible work. You know, you worked for these really big companies and now you started Holo and you're in big retail stores and like really disrupting an industry. But I know that some days have to be so shitty, like super <laughs> shitty, like this sucks. I just want to go, you know, pour my Pinot Noir and go to bed right yeah. now. Like I just, yeah. this day needs to end. Yeah. And would you be okay maybe sharing a little bit more of that, sharing yeah. the suck? Like what are some of maybe the downfalls where some days you might be like, you know, I still wish I was a designing director at Merrill or something yeah. like that. You know, like some days I wish I didn't do this. Like, yeah. could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? What are, what are, what's the suck? How do you get through the suck? Uh, you know, you have to have really good people around you. I mean, I think that's one of the most important thing. You have to have a really great team that understands that it sucks for everyone. You know, I mean, founder you know of a company but there's a lot of people that are here that are not it's not just this is not just the Romel Vega company this is the you know Udi Vega company the Joseph Malone company the Aaron Sander company this is like a lot of us company you know this is everybody has such a key role to play and the days are hard there's some really really hard days so one of one of the in the beginning the, the really some of the hardest thing was like fundraising was really hard in the beginning mm. because we had this group of incredibly time to people that have been doing this for a long time and there were still doubts on like well you know how are you going to scale the business and like what's your runway and like oh well what's your burn rate you know you're just kind of like okay cool get all your questions but do you care for the fact that the product is at REI or Nordstrom at all and so I mean those things were really challenging and has been challenging for us as a company because we're not, I always joke around, we're not just some people that were sitting in the garage and say like, oh, I'm gonna go start a company. Like, no, we were doing this for a very long time before we did this. This is not something that just happened yesterday. Like we put in, the team collectively has over, you know, 70 years of experience in, in doing wow. this. So it's really disheartening, I think, when they ask questions and like business as usual, because they don't value and they don't understand brand building and they don't understand brand positioning and, and scalability in a different way. So those days were really tough, um, but we've had some really great partners along the way too. You know, there's been a lot of people who have encouraged us to just, you know, during the difficult times and any young startup, some of the most difficult times always going to be funding, you know, and we didn't, we didn't want to do crowdfunding, you know, we're not trying to do that kind of funding. Like we, we want, we've always in the beginning, one of the right investors to come in and write the checks that we needed. And they did, you know, one of them was Elevate Capital. I always think that they're one of the best ones we have. Invest Detroit Ventures has been good to us as well. JB Capital down in Austin, Texas, they were they were great, you know, because these are people who are founders, who companies succeeded, some of them failed. So they understand you, you know, they know what you're going through. And then another thing, you know, that suck is like, you know, custom pulling over your 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 freight that they got to check. And, you know, it's, it's in customs hands and you have no say on when it's going to get released. And that product has to get to a retailer. And you're like trying to do everything possible to get that stuff to get, you know, sent out to to your retail partners. And then just like natural friction, I think, of a company or a young company like that has succeeded in its scale and the speed that we have, just making sure that we're doing the right thing, but we're also allowing ourselves to fail along the way because that's how you learn. Like if you're just always succeeding, I don't know that you're scaling and maximizing what something could be. And then, like, you know, the mental health of the team is really important. You know, like we now three years in, We've been able to kind of pull away from the the business when we need to, at least trying to a little bit more, you know, not letting it consume you, not letting it, 
you know, just really take you over, understand that people need time off, you know, the days of like, oh, I'm going to start this, you know, Bezos, how he started his company, all he did was work, like, it's not healthy for anyone, I think, personally, and like, if your goal is to be that, that's great, you can go do that, uh, that's not our goal, uh, our goal is just to make great product for people, and people have lives, which they have kids, and they need time off, and they need to work remotely, I mean, most of our people work remotely, so we do care about, obviously, the team itself, and how we're performing, and I think the brand reflects that. It's why we're having success. I think, you know, despite the hard days, and I always said the team, smooth seas don't make good sailors. But at the end of the day, like, if we're all sailing together, like, bring the waves because I think we're going to be all right. Oh, yes. I mean, you just got married. So I bet yeah. that felt good to take away, you know, step away yeah. with you and your now wife. And, yeah. and you're telling me about this beautiful honeymoon you went to, um, Holbox Island or whole, how do you pronounce Holbox it? Holbox in Mexico. Yeah. 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 Man, it was cool. I need to go. Yeah. You should. It's cool. It's um again, that one of those things you just kind of need to step away and we you know we were able to do it. I mean, there were still conversations that were had about business or whatever. And you know, <laughs> she's yeah, she's you know, she's badass, obviously. And for us to be in this together, like it just takes a toll. It could take a toll on your relationship, it could take a toll on your friendships. So I think, you know, the team really understands and she understands and I understand that it's important to just have time to, you know, go to the gym, like, you know, do the things you need to get done. Those are things that are important. What's it like with your partner being one of your most important business partners, too? Yeah, well, she's a that. business partner. I mean, she's part owner, founder. She's going to step into yeah. a role here pretty soon. You know, so she's she's interesting because she also has 18 years of experience in the industry. So it's not like, you know, she is like this not knowledgeable of what we do, you know. So right. for me, it's been really great personally because, you know, she checks me when I need to be checked. Um, nice. And she, she's, yeah, she's got, she's got a, she has a lot of value, but she's done this too, right? So it's not like, oh, well, you don't know what you're talking about because you haven't done this, but she's done this. And so. She definitely has a business background, you know, more on the creative side. So we make a really great team on that sense of like she understands more of the, the business needs of the business. Um, and I'm definitely more like visionary product brand. But some of our you know biggest challenges have always been like, you know, we have to find time to turn it off and then focus on our kids, mm. or focus on our ourselves and then go to the gym, spend time alone, not necessarily just talk about the business. And so I think we're getting better at that. And then beginning, obviously, it was that's all you could really talk about. But now I think we're getting better at it as we start to grow. But, you know, she's, I think for the business itself, like the people and the team really respect her. And I would say like, this is not, you know, this is not some charity work. It's not because she's a woman like that. No, she's badass. She's put 18 years in this industry. And if she was working anywhere else, she would still, you know, she have a position, but I think she's a, her vision of where the brand wants to be. That's really respected here. And I think she's going to be, you know, incredible next phase of the company as she comes in and kind of grab the, the, the brand by the horn i say she's going to be an incredible incredible asset and then you know the team really like her and and i think it's cool to have somebody like that as your partner and your wife i mean for me i'm super lucky so i can't i can't really complain you know she's the one the person that i'm always like talking about product and brand but she gets me you know that's why we're married <laughs> oh Congrats yeah, again. Yeah. It's when, when it's right, it's right. When it's perfect, it's perfect. In yeah, all the ways. Sure. So for what's sure. next? What's next for Hola? What what is the I mean, can you tell me? Are you allowed? Are you not allowed? Yeah, yeah, or you know, what's like people, next? <laughs> no, people in the industry talk about like they, they like high things, like it's like you're working on some top secret, like 
Yeah. Your, no, no, it's just, just shoes. Just shoes. Chill. Like it's just <laughs> it's like, no need to have key cards access to anywhere here. Like no one here is creating like the cure for anything. It's just literally shoes in this fashion. You know, for us, we're really we're expanding international, so that's really great. Uh, we're excited about that. We have some key partners. Can't really disclose who they are, but big players in the industry. I'm stepping down to CEO of the company. Yudi's coming in as CEO of the company, so that's a really big change. Wow! So we're going through the process of that, seeing what that looks like, and trying to just kind of obviously go through the process of like each one of us really understanding the role. And then, you know, for us, just keep growing. You know, we want to grow smart in the right places, find the right partners. International is one of our main focus and just keep creating really beautiful product for people um, responsibly. And then, you know, keep spreading the word. You know, I really appreciate you having us on the show and, you know, spreading the love on Holo. You know, we're a small three-year-old startup, so we're not like massive by any means of the imagination. But, you know, we're looking to scale in, in Grand Rapids where we have a headquarters. And just, you know, keep, keep trying to make a difference. I think that's definitely always top of mind. And partner with the right people. There's a cool partnership coming in the summer. I can't say, or else, like, my PR person is going to be really mad at me. But there's a super cool partnership coming up this summer, which I'm really super stoked about. I think we're all really excited about that. That's going to be big. Yeah. Oh, how exciting. Well, I yeah. am super grateful to just be a little tiny part of your story and to share your yeah. incredible work. And if you ever need uh, some testing in the field, I'm sure yeah. me and anyone listening would love to give your shoes a good, a good try. <laughs> like yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that'd be really cool. <laughs> some real honest feedback would be great. We won't, we won't sugarcoat yeah. it here. <laughs> yeah, it'll be honest. Well, well, awesome, Ramel. So please, if anybody listening might want to learn more about Holo or, or you or the company or where to get shoes or anything, could you just like spiel off how to get a hold of what it is that you do in your company and shoes and everything. Yeah, I mean, our, the best way is to go to holofootwearinc.com. That's holofootwearinc.com. And then follow us on Instagram, holofootwear. Uh, and then, you know, visit your local REI, local Nordstrom's. We're in there, you know, Macy's. And, you know, check out articles on Forbes. We've had a few articles on Outside Magazine. So, yeah, any any kind of love you can give us, you don't have to just buy a pair of shoes, follow us, add us, spread the word. I think this brand has been built, like I always say, it's been built in the field by all of us. And we're all trying to scale this thing together. Yeah, appreciate all the love, all the support. And uh, yeah, keep on, keep on keeping on. Awesome. Well, thanks yeah. so much, Ramel. I cannot wait to share your story with everybody. Cool. Thanks a lot, Brooke. Thanks for having us. I sure had a blast recording this episode with Ramel. If you're in the market for a new pair of shoes, I highly recommend checking out Holo to see if they fit your lifestyle and needs. I'd love to know if you buy a pair or see Holo shoes while you're out and about. Tag Rewildology on your favorite social media app and we'll share with the whole Rewildology community. Remember, if you have a question about today's episode, please submit your question in the Rewildologist Facebook group. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. 
If you'd like to financially support this show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at rewatology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewatology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to send a special thanks to Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewatology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>